I think when you when you taste the the blood of running a startup, setting something up by yourself, you know, realizing your own idea, if you taste that once, you want to go back there. Hey, folks, Garrett here. In this episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast, we introduce Alex Grotz, entrepreneur, innovator, creative, and expert in the art and craft of design thinking. We're discussing Alex's fascinating and circuitous career from being a paramedic to working in the music industry, from building his first startup during the dot-com bubble to leading world-famous design agency IDEO in Germany, from co-founding the high-growth IoT venture ProGlove to advising innovation projects around the globe. Alex is one fascinating and creative cat, not to mention an incredible storyteller with experiences that could fill volumes. But his easily palatable way of explaining how to put people at the center of innovation is what makes him such an incredible guest. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Alex Grutz, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. Really looking forward to the conversation. You know, after you held a workshop for a bunch of VHU students a month ago, uh, I think everybody was fascinated by the stories that you told. And it would be really great to understand a little bit about the person and the career behind all the wisdom that you imparted that day. So um, all of our episodes kind of start the same way. I'm a big, big fan of storytelling. Um, so let's let's start with a story and just... Um, Give us a give us a little rundown of where you come from and kind of your journey to uh, the Alex Grutz of today. Right. So my story actually, um, it would it would be too long because there are too many turns and twists and kind of like little pieces and bits. So uh, we would cover the whole hour. So I start, let's say, you know, with my education, which sometimes sounds a bit unusual. I don't know why, because. I kind of like have, you know, the Germans amongst here, they will know what I'm talking about. I'm only a Hauptschüler, which is like the lowest possible education that you get in Germany. I dropped out after nine years, well, actually, when the, that kind of like school was over and started to work very early and didn't know what I want. So I just followed my father's footsteps. He recommended something and then I started there. And, uh, and then I had many, many twists. My first kind of like apprenticeship, what you do in Germany, you know, the vocational training was administrative official for the German government. <laughs> you learn one thing there, which is waiting. <laughs> I know how to wait. It's actually value valuable, you know. You know, if you know and if you understand the waiting time, it's perfect. That's the only thing I learned there. But then I moved from there. I afterwards I was a paramedic for a couple of years, you know, with my kind of like uh, civil service that you have to do. But I extended that to become a real paramedic, and then I went into the music industry. I mean, well, I was actually selling record in the biggest record stores in Germany. And I did some other stuff, so many little jobs and 
then I wanted to start my own, my first own kind of company, was, which was something that I did as a teenager with some friends, which was like having a center where you can stage concerts and theater and movies and, you know, like a cultural center. Uh, and we did a big kind of like effort for that, but that didn't work out. Then I decided to kind of like start my hotel career. <laughs> so I went into hotel management, was working, did my apprenticeship again, like my third apprenticeship in Germany. And then I was uh, actually doing work in Hong Kong for a little while in the hotel industry and then in London hotel industry. From there, I moved into technology actually, because somebody uh, hijacked, not hijacked, headhunted me hijacked had handed me uh, to move into kind of like hotel management systems train people install them kind of like do all this administrative stuff behind that then moved into running a call setting up and running a call center for a tech company and so so many different twists and turns uh, interesting journey uh, until old friend of mine who i was actually driving the ambulance with in the paramedic times uh, he approached me and he said, like, well, you know, they are in Germany, there's a new trend now, which running, actually starting your own company. <laughs> that was in the internet bubble, end, end of 90s. And he participated with ideas in business plan competitions in Germany. And he asked me if I want to join. So I was like, mm, why not? You know, sounds interesting. Since we tried that before a little bit. And uh, so I had, we kind of like did an idea brainstorm. We had lots of ideas. I only had one. They had many more because they were physicists. Uh, from Max Planck Institute here in Munich and high, high flyers. I only had one, but mine was the most kind of like user-driven. So that was the first start because it was purely based on what I observed in my environment. And uh, we entered that. We actually worked it out a little bit and we won some competitions in Germany. And based on that, we uh, started our first company. We were venture funded, totally over-ventured. So we had more money than we actually asked for because it was 1999 or 1998, 1999. Uh, where we got lots of money and uh, we, we tried that and uh, one and a half years and it crashed completely because the internet bubble burst and kind of like it was a funny story because our investors also had problems and they put all their people into their investments mm -hmm. so they you know the few that were surviving they took their people and put them into those because they had the power and it was like overnight yeah and this was a technology company yeah we did a speech recognition for mobile devices huh. okay so the Siri of that time. <laughs> Nuance was one of our competitors, early ones, who was just bought by Microsoft for, I don't know, what, 10 billion or 15 billion? Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, and that was the time when a company called us to do a project with us. They actually wanted to do a project with us. And we're like, why are you calling me? I mean, who are you? And that company was IDEO. Um, IDEO, maybe some know them. They are Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley based by that time and actually in Palo Alto, not anymore. Innovation agency. Well, actually by that time it was mainly a design and engineering company. Uh, design thinking was not even born yet, but uh, it was not a term yet. And uh, I got to learn that because they started an office here in, in Germany. And uh, I got to learn, the learn something about the team, their approach and what they were doing. And also our project started a little bit, but ended very quickly again. And I was like, okay, my company with the investors and so on, that is all going pear shaped. Maybe I should just jump, you know, jump ship. And I started with IDEO uh, as business development, first of all, because there was um, growing the, the German office. They had an office in London, but Germany was the next one. And then uh, sometime later, I became managing director there. And I was in charge with my team to kind of like grow that 
business and the and the office, the location to like a larger size. So I was there for altogether eight years, 2002, 2008, end of 2000, 2008. Yeah, and then in that time, kind of like, you know, I was a lot in, in, in the States as well in all the other locations and working uh, as an innovation consultant, actually not myself, I was not so much in the content, but I was always there because I had the business perspective. I was mainly hiring people, doing the strategy, doing the selling, the representation, you know, the main presentations, but I was always involved in content and also added my perspective, but I got to learn the method and how they were working. And uh, in that time, design thinking was kind of like crafted or articulated as an offering. And uh, I was part of that kind of like also in, in, in the Valley when we were there and thought about it. And uh, yeah, then after eight years, it was like, okay, what's next, you know? Growing idea to another level or going to another location was not really my thing. I had some other ideas, you know. The I think when you when you taste the the blood of running a startup, setting something up by yourself, you know, realizing your own idea, if you taste that once, you want to go back there. <laughs> I mean, after my own startup and all this venture thing and the bubble bursting, that was kind of like pretty stressful and energy draining. So the idea time was a uh, was re-energizing. So I was it was a little bit of vacation, being in a job again, getting a monthly income. Uh, but also in this creative environment, of course, it was was very interesting. And uh, I wanted to start my next company. So I actually wanted to open a hotel because that was my history. Um, but I didn't get the funding. So what I did was actually with some friends, we started another agency and were direct competitor to IDEO <laughs> in a smaller scale. We were only four or five people. Uh, we also grew again to like 14, 16, around about that number. So we did that for four years. The company is still running. But I stepped out after four years and kind of like did continue, continued consulting by myself uh, because I had I wanted to travel and so I was uh, actually I was in China for four four months and India for four months all in a project and then traveled some more and then I said like okay I just do it by myself as an individual consultant I was doing that actually I'm still doing that today by myself um, and but in the meantime you know I always. It was already with IDEO, you had an, a, a solid, stable agency with like many, many employees. And then I moved into like the smaller agency with 10 people, 14 people, 15 people. Okay, that was interesting. And I thought the future is not like having a, having all these hired people anymore. The future is really in like working with individuals because that is much more flexible and also you have a more creative influx and it's, it's, it's so interesting. So that's why I said, like, just be by myself, but recruiting through my network. And whenever there's a project in, in China or in the States or in Scotland or like in Spain or whatever, I find people locally and I go there to work there. And that's what I did in the last few years. So my projects were really everywhere from Africa, Asia, South America, Europe, of course. And so I always found people actually in these places to work with me. And that was quite interesting. But we, we, the teams, uh, you know, I had also a higher team for some time here in Germany. Um, we always kind of like earn money through the consultancy, of course, uh, but then I spend the money on realizing my own ideas because I wanted to have like another startup, not on a, on a service basis, but on a product basis. And uh, we tried a few things, I mean, not only products, but also services because I opened my own restaurant. Uh, we had a little shop actually for design articles and we did a, a, a mobility service, something like Uber, of course, much better, but it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we had like an IoT device where we, which we wanted to start on Kickstarter. Um, it was all very interesting. And the, and the people that I worked with were actually my students because when I was still at IDEO, I started the School of Design Thinking in Potsdam. So Hasso Plattner, David Kelly, who was from Stanford, D school, 
and Hasso Plattner, who invested in it very heavily, they came to the German office of IDEO and sat down and said, hey, I want to have that in my university, Hasso said, Hasso Plattner from SAP, because he has this institute in Potsdam, at the University of Potsdam. So they, I kind of like was asked to set it up there. And then I did a similar program, design thinking program for the University of Applied Science here in Munich. In Vienna, we did something in Graz, also did something in China, so in many universities. And with some students from actually my team here in Munich, I hired them to do consulting together with me, but we also kind of like realized our own ideas. And then we had one more idea, which actually came from the outside, from one of, one of our friends. And that was an intelligent glove. And we started that one as a company, which is now a very nice sized company. We have close to 200 people based in Munich, Chicago and Belgrade. Um, so, no, not Belgrade, somewhere else down there. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's running quite well. Internationally, we have a product out. Actually, it's going quite well. We have very nice revenues, we have lots of customers. So it's, it's actually now a smart glove in the sense of that it can scan. So it's a scanning glove. It has a scanning unit on the glove for industrial application. But maybe more to that later. And that's my story. That's where we are today, actually. Well, you're right. That is one hell of a story. You're, uh, you know, I, I certainly can relate to that. Sometimes you, you look for the common thread and uh, maybe you end up finding a little bit more freight ends. I, I can certainly feel that way myself. I, and I was just listening to the story, trying to understand what the common thread is through there. And obvi obviously there is the, a thread of entrepreneurship and, and creating things and, and building things, maybe even even more so than managing things. But when when you uh, when you kind of look at what I'm interested in, I guess, is what you what it is that you kind of do in the day to day, whether you are consulting, you know, what was what do you kind of consider your core skill sets? Were you the business person where did you just have a different way of thinking or are you a process person? How, how would you kind of define your value proposition to projects? Yeah, that's quite interesting. You know, when you ask also about the, the, the red thread or the common thread that goes through all of this, I was thinking about that myself and I was asked several times and really it is people. Um, so, you know, the, the service industry, hotel, in, in the music industry, when I was selling records, I was actually not really a salesperson. I was the guy at the information desk. So it was the Shazam of the old days, you know, when there was no internet. Mm -hmm. Because people came to me and asked me, I heard the song, what is it? You know, how can I find it? So it was, it was very service driven. All the early jobs that I had, had to deal with people. And that continued also in my startup. I was never really the technology guy. I had the idea for my first startup because I understood, apparently I understood like how people interact with their world and you know, amongst them what's happening, the interactions between them. So even in that company, I was in charge of marketing and kind of like communicating it. And later on, even with IDU, I was the people person. I was the one who was hiring and also putting people on the projects and so on. So I was always the people person. And I brought the people perspective into our projects as well. And even with my, with ProGraph as well, it was also, you know, Maybe I was the first one to, to bring that team together, to grow that team, but keeping maybe also through the methodology of design thinking and innovation, that important aspect of the human in the role of innovation and startups and growth and, you know, offerings. It was always kind of like this people's perspective. That was my job as well. Kind of like, yeah, managing more or less, but also bringing the right people together and facilitating initiating conversations. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, communication and relationships are obviously at the, the core of, of any 
good entrepreneurial endeavor, I would argue, and any endeavor in life in general. But, you know, when you think of it in the context of, of business, there's kind of people on both sides of the business, right? They're the ones that you're pulling in to help make the business go. And then they're the ones that you're essentially serving with, whether it's the, the product or the service. It sounds to me like you have a little bit of a, a different way of looking at the, the customer or the people on that side. Can you share a little bit? You talked about, you know, you being at IDEO kind of in the early stages, even pr before design thinking was uh, defined so much as a term. Can you talk a little bit about that journey to, you know, getting deeper into that process and just having like human centered design and, you know, some of your processes and in, in getting to those? You know, I guess getting to those outcomes. Yep. And it's actually in hindsight. I think when I started, like everybody who started at the time in, in this environment, uh, it was always a little bit different. I mean, I, you know, with with my history that I just shared, I was in government kind of like offices. I was in big corporations and smaller companies and so on. But there, it felt always like they had their own world, their own environment, and. Uh, the bigger they, they were, the more detached they were from the real world, it felt. You were kind of like coming into the organization and that was a world in itself. And we're like, we're working for people out there, but we, we're never in touch with them. You know, like, why is that happening? And then when I joined IDEO and many people by that time, and I, I think even now, they were like, oh, there's a different way. You know, we can actually, now we have also more purpose because we are closer to the people that we're working for, that we're designing for. The, the decision makers, all the different stakeholders that are actually a chain of people that make something happen in the end. And uh, why, why don't we deal with all of them? Like somehow get, get their input and engage them and work with them together instead of only for them or like, okay, give us the problem and we come back with a solution. No, like, you know, again, keeping the interaction going. And that was the, also the case in IDEO, maybe also the, the, the basis for design thinking is kind of that, you know, that you don't only design from your own perspective. You might be the ultra expert in the world, but still, you know, if you don't engage with the people that you're working for, that you're designing for, that you're developing for, whatever, it will not go anywhere or your chances are very low. You know, the lone inventor is kind of like a very outdated model if it was ever there. I don't know. <laughs> in hindsight, though, I always think like, but this is so obvious. Mm. I mean, everybody in their private life would do that. I always tell the story. So design thinking, there are steps, you know, in design thinking, it's, a, it's, a, it's an order of process steps where, first of all, you understand the problem, then you actually work, uh, not only from your own perspective, you collect other perspectives, then you bring that together, then you, then you ideate kind of like on, based on your understanding, then you prototype and then you build something and you test it again. So you actually go through these iterations. Now, my story is, if somebody would do that in their private life, let's say you, actually, you are future wife, maybe your marriage, but let's say, you know, before that you had a girlfriend <laughs> and, um, and the, the future mother-in-law would come to you and say like, Garrett, next Wednesday, you cook for me. You know, oh my God, what's happening? You would say like, well, where is that coming from? You try to understand the situation because you never did that before. Something special is, is ongoing, you know, just you mm -hmm. want to ask me something, whatever. So you try to understand. Then you say, okay, understood. I have to accept it. I better do something. Then of course you wouldn't cook anything. It might be a big failure. You try to understand what is she like. So you look at other people's perspective. You ask your girlfriend, you ask maybe her husband or the family, what is she actually like? And then if she tells you she likes French haute cuisine, you're like, oh, I never did that before. 
So you kind of have to synthesize what you understood from her together with your skill set. What can you actually do? And where's the overlap? That is actually how you find opportunities where you can do something. Then you ideate in that space. Then you build something and you wouldn't serve the first try to her. You would actually serve it maybe again to your girlfriend or somebody else and say, do you think she will like that? Is that good enough? And then you actually go out and so you go through that process anyway. It's it's natural by going through these steps. And I'm always surprised that corporations, still not all of them or too few of them, kind of like work in that way, which seems so natural and obvious because that's how you approach the new in the world. When you're a child, that's what you do. You go through these steps. It's one of the ways how you actually approach the new. And if you work in innovation, it's always about the new. Uh, it's very natural to go through that in a professional way because there are tools and processes and guidelines and so on that can help you. Well, that is a, a great segue to what ideas and what thoughts that sparked in my head, which is, you know, why do people, why do companies or corporations, you know, need this, right? I, a, a few months ago, we had Steve Blank on the podcast, and he was talking about um, innovation theater and how big co big companies, you know, they they say they're doing innovation, but in, rea in reality, they're putting lipstick on a pig and they're still focusing on on their core business and their their bottom line, so they they just are structurally incapable of of innovating. What you're talking about here is just kind of a simple way of, of thinking that we are already kind of naturally doing in our daily lives. Where do you see the disconnect? Why does a company, a big company with all the resources in the world, need to bring in someone like you or an agency to get them thinking in a way that they do in their everyday lives already? That's maybe also an interesting segue into like the startup world because if you if you see it kind of like how a startup works, you know, if you start something, if you maybe have an idea, if you understand a problem, if you bring a team together at the early stages, it's all everything that you do is about exploration because you have a very high learning curve. You have to actually learn every day, you know, kind of explore new things, and you have this inert flexibility. You you just have to have it, otherwise you can't move forward. When you grow to a certain size, of course, if you found something that actually works, which maybe sells, of course, you know, if it sells and people want more of that and you find a larger group, which means economical success, then you kind of flip from the exploration to the exploitation. You have something and you want to milk it as much as possible. So you want to increase everything, you know, based on what is successful, which also means the opposite of change. You don't want to change anymore. You want to do that all the time. And big corporations, they're very good at exploitation and like scaling something up and making a big, we used to work with actually a German media house and, and they, I really like that approach because they said, well, we don't want to be the first movers. We want to be the fast followers because we know that we are very good in taking something and making it big. That's what we can do. Coming up with new stuff, we are just not good at it. And that's where we are positioned. Great, you know, but then do it that way. And don't even start with the innovation theater to kind of like show something that you are smart and young and whatever. So it, I think it's really the position where you are. When you are the, uh, on the exploitation, focus on that one. And these companies are just, they are just, I mean, it would be even be for a human. I think the hurdle to change is just getting higher and higher and higher because you don't want to change it. You, you're risking kind of like what you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. That's why I always recommend somehow keep it separate and then work on the integration, which might be easier for you than to start something from within. I mean, what do you think? Because some people would argue that these big corporations, these big companies or more mature companies, however you look at it, are are almost being forced 
to move faster and to adapt. You know, if you look at the, you know, the the top 50 companies in the world now versus 50 years ago, they're completely different. If you if you take that same model and go back 200 years, 150 years, they're almost exactly the same, right? So so technology globalization is forcing these companies to to find new ways to to move fast, to adapt and and to innovate. Do you think that it's sustainable for them to focus on exploitation? Do you think they they need to start looking at exploration? I my sense is from the people I talk to that lead innovation programs in large companies, they're trying to find ways to to get back to the exploratory side of things, but for some reason structurally or systemically, um, they're not they're they're running into obstacles. I guess. Yes, I think. Doing it is still very valuable, but maybe for a different aspect. I'm also design thinking as a method. When, when, when we started it and when we worked, uh, um, it was not only ideal. Most agencies were working in that way, but then there was this term. Of, okay, that's what we do now? Okay, that's what you always did. Now it's called design thinking, fine. Um, um, and kind of like it moved from doing projects, doing results, output-driven, into doing it. Uh, a series of workshops. I was like, it's not only about workshops, you know, you have, to do, you have to do more. But then again, these workshops are also valuable because in the big corporations where you do the workshops, you actually keep your team edgy and motivated. So you keep them, you know, through, through these exercises. But it's it's very rare that I see outcomes that really change big corporations because they just don't dare to, I mean, they are very good outcomes, but they don't dare to actually, you know, really put them into the core business and scale them up and make them big. And um, yeah, you're right. You know, the companies have changed, and the, you know they, they are very different in the last 50 years than than before, and they still have to do that. But as I just said, I, I think most companies actually are staying on top right now through acquisitions of smaller companies. <laughs> right. So they actually buy the small ones, which really have something that is on the edge of being, you know, very good for exploitation. And if the integration works well, then great. You know, that's how how they get new stuff in. But the in, in, internal things for, for really for results that will be a big part of uh, that big corporation's future. There are a few cases, of course. There are well, maybe there are even quite a few, quite a few cases. But still, you know, overall, it's rare against uh, the number of acquisitions that are done in order to create these new offerings and products. But the, but the programs, you know, the creativity and the theater is very good, I think, for the internal people mm-hmm. to keep them motivated, engaged, and keeping keep thinking fresh and all these things well that's a that's a great a great uh lead up to the question that i've been thinking about which is you know you've got uh this exploitation exploration kind of gap that exists there and you know i think of it a lot when you think of you know people again um children um, they're all, you know, there are neurochemicals that drive novelty and exploration that decrease over time, naturally. And there's some interesting cliffs that happen when people have children, the, these neurochemicals plummet, right? And people um, stop looking for, for such novelty. So, you, you know, you have these kind of different, different personas, different people, right? If your job as a as a, essentially a facilitator or getting people to think in different terms or facilitate the way they uh, address different challenges or, or um, uh, problems, how, how much do people matter? You know, do you have to really get people to reframe the way that they engage with, 
with problem solving and the way they engage with the world? Or do you need to find the right people within those clients and organizations that already have that kind of novelty seeking mindset? The reason I'm asking this is I think so much about the difference between the type of people that work in a startup versus the type of people that work in maybe an established company with a, a stable paycheck and stability. And, um, you know, you have very different personas there. You're trying to bring these processes and this novelty seeking and maybe even risk taking into organizations with people that may not be naturally inclined to that. How do you how do you deal with that challenge? It's actually I always have to prepare my clients. And it's, it's really a very interesting topic because the highest admiration I have for the people that actually are working on these kind of topics within big corporations and I'm not giving up because very often I experience, okay, when we work with them and they see this different way of working that they maybe never have seen before, but they, but they also feel like it's kind of natural and it's also bringing you something also personally and, and the organization and the team and so on that when they then come back to their normal day-to-day -day job, they try to apply these things and they, you know, run against the wall because it's just not working. It's not only, you know, that you that you create a unit which will then work in a new way, the rest of the organization needs to be prepared for it receiving, you know, kind of like that different way. <laughs> if that doesn't happen, they will just run against the wall. That means also, and that's how I prepare my clients, that I tell them, well, you know, based on the history and reality that I faced over the years is, some of those people that you, you will send into the training now, they will leave. They will actually <laughs> leave your company because they go into other areas where they do something by themselves or in an environment where this is possible. The ones that are staying and that keep fighting within the big organization, these are the ones for, that have the highest admiration for me because it's just so hard. And it can be very frustrating over a long time until kind of like a culture is starting to change slowly and starts to roll which in a big corporation takes some time. It's possible, definitely, but it takes some time. The ones on the startup side, they kind of have it easy <laughs> because you know, there, there's nobody that tells them, okay, don't do this. No, they, they, they actually, even if an investor or somebody else says like, no, you know, we don't do that, they can be flexible and can adjust and can, they have all the freedom to do that. So it's almost not easy, but it's, it's a hard thing to do, but it's, it's just, you know, you don't have too many hurdles. And uh, also that's the interesting part in a startup. A startup environment itself, where maybe you have four people to start with, everybody needs to do everything. Mm -hmm. So you're forced to be highly flexible, highly explorative the whole time. You're just forced by the situation itself. So you, you either have that nature or, or you fail. Right. So you know, these are how they split up. So do you think some people are just hardwired that way? And I'm, I, maybe that is my nice way of asking, are you hardwired that way? Because I look at your career and what you explained, and it reminds me a bit of mine, which is there's a window of time where things are really exciting and fun. And then after X number of years, it's, uh, I tend to seek new novel experiences. Would you say that this way of thinking is kind of permeated and, and defined a little bit of your trajectory too? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's actually another thing coming back to design thinking. Also, you, you don't often hear that, or it's not often talked about, you know, the, the profiles of the people that you need um, in, a, in a project that is in, on, in the innovation realm and maybe with design thinking, they are the ones that have, they, they just have a passion and a joy in exploring things and constantly asking themselves, asking kind of like rephrasing the question, finding out something new, they're extremely valuable to tap into the unknown 
to figure something out and actually come back with something concrete. Fantastic. Now, if you ask them to actually develop something which takes a lot of time and you work very much in the detail, most likely you will fail because they constantly question themselves. They want to, they have more passion for like, okay, it's not working. Let's try something new. They wouldn't try again or again or again or again. No, no, they would just, okay, let's switch, try something else. No, you need other people who are very much in love with like, okay, I, I, I want to fix that problem. I know I can do it. I just try it again and again, and I go deeper and I try, you know, it's a different kind of personality. Those people most likely be scared about the exploration phase. So it's like, I don't have anything concrete here. Everything is changing on a daily basis. I can't work in that way. You actually need different people, but you still have to connect them. Kind of like the ones from the beginning, from the front end should stay to keep the intent into the long phase. And maybe the ones that actually develop something in the long run should be part of the exploration phase, but not in charge of it. So how can you actually bring these, again, we're coming to the point of how do you bring the right people together to make something work? which maybe was my red line. Yeah, that's what uh, what we talked to Steve Blank on that podcast about was ambidextrous organizations, right? Where you have the people that can, you know, drive the, the novelty and seek new opportunities and then the people that can drill down on that and, and help to operationalize it. You know, we, we don't have too much time left, but I want to bring it back to storytelling because I've heard a couple of your stories and I don't know if you could maybe pull one out of the memory banks just because we're talk, we've talked about kind of design thinking. We've talked about these processes in maybe high level terms, but for people that don't really understand the concept, do you maybe have an example, you don't have to name any names, but of a, a, a particular project or a uh, an innovation challenge or something that you implemented these processes and tools to uh, an interesting outcome? No, 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 no. Let me think. Maybe I can actually talk a little bit more about, about Proglove because there was the same case there. We, um, Proglove is, is set up, the whole team was trained in design thinking. We, we always use that, the, the core elements of design thinking in our operation, in everything that we are doing. So not only in product development, but also in like finance, in HR, in marketing, and all these elements. And uh, also with our first product, because our first idea was actually to have an intelligent glove that had lots of different sensors, because our hand can maybe say like, okay, something is hot or cold or you know, wet or dry or so, but we can't tell exactly. Uh, and our idea was if we kind of like have sensors in the glove, it can tell you exactly how hot it is, like the real temperature or like how humid it is or whatever it might be. And we, we, we tried to build that thing, uh, but then we faced reality. And in reality, you know, there are many business cases, but they're all too small. And uh, then you have to figure out, okay, where's the right business case? So we went to different companies and we tried things out actually. Uh, and, the, and the automotive company was like the closest one. We're sitting in Munich here. So we have lots of car companies around here. And um, then we saw kind of like, you know, the, the scanning application and how often that actually has to happen. We didn't know, you know, how many times something needs to be scanned. But then, okay, scanning seems to be something. Scanning was anyway one of our ideas. So let's focus on that one. But then really how people deal with the current scanning solutions. You have scanning pistols that you actually have to take in your hand and then you drop it again, you put it somewhere. And then you have to carry stuff. And it was so interesting to see how people actually you know, they have the scanning pistol in their hand or the, like the device, but then when they have to carry stuff, they need both hands, so they put it somewhere. And very often they actually put it into the package that they just scanned and put the next package on top mm -hmm. and then they ship it out. So <laughs> these are the problems that you don't see because nobody would ever tell you um, that actually there's, there's a loss of scanning pistols because they always disappear in the packages that are so, supposed to be scanned. 
And only through going out there, you actually realize and see the real problems that you then have to solve. Because when you only sit with the managers kind of like in the rooms and talk about these situations, even if you know somebody would bring that up, they would say, yeah, but that's, that's an error, that's a mistake, that doesn't happen often. Uh, so you know we shouldn't work from that situation, we should work from the ideal situation. And that is the problem because the ideal situations, they are perfect, you don't need to solve them. You have to solve these situations that are challenging and bumpy and you know <laughs> where, where errors happen and that's what you want to fix and solve. So that was uh, you know, also a driving point for us. So to be able to identify, you know, those kind of weak links in the, the process, you know, whether it's the, that some people were packing their, their pistols into the boxes along the way, I mean, there, there must be some pretty practical techniques as well in terms of, you know, action research or deep qualitative analysis. This isn't the kind of thing you're going to discover from surveying a, a potential market, right? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how, you, how you're able to identify those things? Are you just observing? Are you really kind of having long interviews with people? How do you, how do you find those nuggets like that? Yeah, yeah absolutely, there, there are techniques. But I think the interesting part is really to do, to do research on a broader scale where um, the, the quantitative research, you know, based on data that already has been generated is of course valuable. valuable. But most likely, that's you know most most people who want to solve a problem look at the same data, and the difference is then made to the quality. So the qualitative research, like if you cook a meal, you know you can cook a meal like everybody else, spaghetti, but then the small spices make the difference in how it tastes. So here the same, the quantitative research that you do through surveys, maybe through data that has already been generated, and today you know so many data is generated, you can look at that is already very interesting. But then if you do qualitative work. And that is really what you say, through observations, going into these environments, asking people, interviewing them, spending time with them. Also in, in, in different interactions, like one is actually you talk to them, you have them maybe narrate what they're talking about, which is one tool. So you, you not only ask them questions, but you say like, can you show me what you do and then talk about it? Because while they're doing it, they will actually stumble across their own kind of like, un, 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 like the things that are problematic because they say, this is what I do. This is what, I don't know why I'm doing this. I normally just automatically do this, but I actually don't know why. And then you find something, right? Mm. So narration, but then also by not engaging them, you know, there's a tool called fly on the wall where you just actually stand in one spot for a long time and watch your environment because we are always rushing through everything. We always believe like, okay, got it next. No, stay there for a longer time in order to observe your environment and see really what's happening in the detail. And the mixture of these things, they will, you know, bring up and, you know, the boil up the, the essence of everything that you might be looking for. But then together with the quantitative, you can bring that into a broader perspective. So where are the bigger problems? Where also is the bigger effect? I think Airbnb is a fantastic company in that case because they use design thinking and these innovation methods quite a lot, but they're still a data-driven company. But they say like, we have to, you know, be quantitative and very detailed and explorative in order to build the cases where we then can measure on a bigger scale. And that's where how we build our decisions. And, and, and I think that's the right mix that you have to do in order to identify something that has a big impact, right. big yeah. as well as impact. Right. Both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what's the adage is uh, quantitative research is if, if, what, and when, and qualitative is how and why. And without the how and why, it seems like you don't find those, those magic bits. Just w one more piece on that, which is, you know, I think, a lot of people are fascinated with this concept and this topic of design thinking. Um, 
someone that wants to acquire more of these skills or get deeper into the this way of thinking, um, perhaps it's an entrepreneur, perhaps it's, it's someone working for an established company and wants to expand their horizons. How would I, wh- how would I go about, you know, acquiring these skills? So, there, there, of course, there's many, there, there are many resources out there. There are many books, there are articles, there are videos, there are courses, all that stuff. And most of them are pretty good. I mean, I don't have an overview because there's so many out there now. <laughs> there are the big ones. I do itself as the inventor, more or less, uh, has some stuff out there. But I always recommend design thinking in itself. As I said, it's, it's fairly natural. And it's a very practical approach. It's, it's, there's theory behind it. There are tools and processes. Yes, you can read up on them. But the real understanding is the combination of these things through trying. So the best way is actually, you know, go somewhere where you find a resource, where you can read up on it, where you can maybe watch a video, try the free stuff. You don't have to even pay for that in the beginning, uh, but then try it out. Build yourself a case. Maybe find even some people that can that you can work with because it's not really the, the, the process to work alone on, but find some people that you can work on this. And then actually find yourself a challenge and try it out. Try what you read, what you hear, and through the trying, you will also find your own questions, what you still need to learn and where you have to go deeper. And then you can always build on that by maybe joining one of these classes or courses and also paying for it because they're very good. Either in Potsdam, you know, in Stanford or from organizations um, and, and other classes, they're very good. Um, but try something first because then you actually get a better understanding of, okay, what do I need to find out? You know, do I really like that? Is it something for me? And all these things. So yeah. try it first. Sounds like the same answer I give to people about wanting to learn about entrepreneurship. You gotta, you gotta, gotta do first. You know, I like to wrap up the these episodes with a, a couple short questions, um, and I think the first one for for someone like you will will undoubtedly have an interesting answer. As someone who has uh, had a circuitous journey and a really interesting one, if you look back over the the past few decades. What would you say that you have learned over your career that you wish you could have told your younger self? What what would you share to young people as a, a nugget of wisdom? Yeah, I think um, I would I would tell myself actually, you know, going through all these years, also where I started, I would never expected that I kind of like end up as a hauptschüler, you know, to train professors in this methodology. I mean, mm-hmm. professors were coming to me as a team and said, like, can you train us in this? Governments came to us. We're like. Ooh, wow, we're amazing. <laughs> so I would I would say trust yourself much more than your plan. You have a plan, it's good, you know, but don't trust the plan that much because it will never work. Trust yourself. If you if you kind of like gain some confidence in something, really trust yourself. Because also for me, in hindsight, there was always something. I actually, you know, I was never really worried. I, in the beginning, I was worried. I was like, oh, what do I do in the future? What will next? You know, is that really my career? Do I stay in this now? Is it, is it enough for me or good for me? But then over time, I was like, What's that? just, you know, whatever comes along that's interesting, uh, even if there's some risk involved, maybe financially or the situation is changing, you have to go to another place. But if it feels good, if the resonance is there, and if you trust yourself, it will get you further. You will just learn more. And that was for me the case. I I'd always made these jumps without planning them. <laughs> because I trusted, okay, if, if it feels good, if I'm really interested in that, if it generates energy and the resonance is there, do it, whatever it takes, because it always brought me further. And I think if I would have told me that and I would have believed it when I was a young guy, it would have helped me. 
but most likely I wouldn't have believed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so go go with the flow and the opportunity, not with the plan. Yeah, but yeah. trust yourself. You know, yeah. if, if you feel insecure with something, don't do it. But if you feel like the passion is there, even if the insecurity is there, but the passion is bigger, mm-hmm. that's kind of like, okay, I'm confident about something. I'm yeah. gaining that confidence. Right. That's great. Great advice. A uh, couple, couple short questions before we wrap it up. Um, one, I'm always, I always learn so much about a person by the books that they read. Uh, is there a book on your bedside table? Is there a book that you recommend? Yeah, that's embarrassing answer. I don't read. Yeah. <laughs> My last book that I read was like really more than 20 years ago. I don't read books. I always fall asleep. I, I'm, a, I'm a news junkie. I read yeah. lots and lots of articles and the news all the time about everything. It's kind of like I'm, I'm dipping my toes into almost everything. I'm interested in politics, technology, arts, culture, and all of these, but mainly through articles, podcasts as well that I listen to, you know, the, the new media. Mm. But somehow the books, I really, really would love to go back, but so I don't read a book. <laughs> I, I can understand that 100%. Um, well, then that's a perfect segue into the last question, which is someone who d- listens to podcasts, who obviously has a, a love and a background in, in music. What uh, what's cycling on Alex's playlist these days? Yeah, also difficult. I, I mean, but it's I listen to a lot of music. I'm also a junkie there. You know, I so I you know I, I use my news service so that they recommend you something every week. I, I only listen to that all the time, so I always want to hear something new. And having worked in a record store for a few years, uh, of course, you know, I have to have lots of music. So it's also difficult because I I also like so much stuff, uh, but I think. What, what I'm listening to most currently is Fortet. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know him. He's a DJ actually from the UK, Fortet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a German guy called Bernd Friedman. He's mm-hmm. a little bit more on the jazzy side. He's from Coburg. Highly oh. recommended. Uh, so it's both instrumental, no, no, no vocals, but it's electronic jazz. Kind of, that's the part. And do you use instrumental music in the background when you work to kind of improve your focus and creativity? Or is that just pure joy and leisure time? No, no I, I always listen to music when I actually work creatively and mainly actually without vocals, you're right. Mm-hmm. And mainly electronic music, there, actually. Yeah, it's great for that. It's great. It gets the, the brain waves where they need to be. And also, you know, sometimes it just keeps you on the flow and you can move along with it. You kind of like float into the horizon, but then beep comes back again and you get another drive. You're back on the train and oh, different mm-hmm. things that help you. Yeah. Uh, Alex, man such a pleasure i could i could have this conversation for hours i would love to hear more of the stories but we'll have to save that for another day thank you so much for joining us thanks for the questions very interesting it's always you know, it's also part of design thinking if you have good questions you know people just like to have good conversations so if you engage with them and you have a good conversation it's not only that they give you something you also give them something so thank you for the questions it's always a pleasure to talk about oneself. So. <laughs> I'm glad. Awesome. Until next time, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a nice day. Well, folks, that was Alex Grotz, entrepreneur, innovator, and design thinking guru. Stay tuned for our next episode, which goes live every other Wednesday. Until then, be sure to check out our website at mostawesomepodcast.com. Follow our channel on YouTube, subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.